0: Commercials. Uh, Join me in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19. Uh, This is on page 60 if you're using the Bible uh, in the pew, or you can turn or click there. Uh, We always have the uh, verses on the screen as well if that's easier. We've been in the middle of a series uh, going through the book of Exodus. We're trying to go through uh, the majority of this book this summer. Uh, this epic tale of God rescuing His people from slavery in Egypt and then establishing them um, as a people, as a nation. And but the point of this, the thing we've been emphasizing, is what does this book tell us about knowing God? Uh, what is God like? How does He reveal Himself? What does He tell us about Himself, um, so that we can know who He is and the life that He's calling us to? So some of the different things we've been talking about and looking at, we've been talking about the fact that God is a God who still works. Um, that he, he, even when it seems like maybe um, things are going to go a little chaotic, God is still working all the time. We've talked about the fact that he hears us and he responds. He's not a God who's aloof or indifferent, but he's aware of what we're going through. He's a God who's in control always. He's mighty, he's majestic, he's sovereign, he's all-powerful. He is in control of not only the universe, but of our lives. We've talked about in that that he also is the God who reigns, that he is the only God over creation, and that within that, though, that he's a God who graciously guides, um, that uh, he, he is gracious with us, he cares for us, he, is, he comes down to us and walks with us through everything that we're going through. Uh, so, so some of these are some of the different things that we've seen as this book has gone on. And as we get into this next part, we're going to uh, you know, carry on to probably one of the most significant parts in the entire book. But before we do, let's pray and ask God to speak to us. God, we are so grateful for who you are. We worship you. We acknowledge that you're God and we're not. And we acknowledge that you are worthy of worship, that you are majestic, that you are all-knowing, all-powerful, that you are gracious, that you're merciful, that you love us beyond what we can comprehend. I pray, God, that you would encourage us with those truths this morning. With whatever we did bring in today, This let us know that you love us and that you are near that you have wisdom available for us, that you walk with us through those things. God, I pray that you would uh, open your word to us, that you would be the one speaking, that you would penetrate through all those different distractions, whatever they might be, to just to hear, to reach into our hearts and our minds so that we could hear from you. Whether people are sitting here or watching at home, God, I pray that you would, Spirit, you would just move and speak and let us know that you are there. In your name we pray, amen. So we all have defining moments in life. We've had some type of defining moments, those milestones which form and fashion who we are. Maybe for you, it's the moment that you seize an opportunity, or the moment uh, for you that when a job ended that you were suffering through in order to enter into a vocation that you were made for. Maybe it was realizing what that vocation was. Maybe that defining moment was a huge failure. Maybe that defining moment was a huge success. Maybe it was a major conflict. Maybe it was a major victory. Maybe a graduation, a wedding. Maybe there was just some, something that happened, just a simple walk by the lake. But whatever it was, it felt like that everything was leading to that moment. And everything after that moment was different because of what happened. We've had those defining moments in our lives. And I think if you shared some of yours and I shared some of mine, we would see and be able to talk about very easily how they formed and fashioned who we are. Well, chapter 19 in Exodus is such a moment. Um, It is a defining moment for God's people. Everything in the book has been leading to this chapter, and everything that happens will then come after it. This defining, significant moment in the Israelites' history. It says in the beginning of chapter 19, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. They finally made it to Sinai. they god told moses way back in chapter 3 he said i will i will be with you and this shall be my sign for you that i have sent you when you have brought the people out of egypt you shall serve god on this mountain so here now 16 chapters later and after everything that they've gone through we've gone full circle we're now what god said way back then this is coming true they're here they're here at this mountain to hear from god to be in god's presence to worship the Lord. And actually once now that they're here at Sinai, they're actually going to be here for a little over a year. This again this is a major defining season in the Israelites history. What happens in the rest of Exodus and the next book in Leviticus and going into Numbers happens within this year or so that they're here in Sinai. But here in chapter 19 where we're at is the beginning of that time. It's the start of this really significant season of defining who they are. Remember, that's what we've said this whole book is about. How God has rescued them, brought them out of Egypt, and established them as a nation. Created this people from his own heart. Chapter 19 is the beginning of that forming this nation part. And so it says in verse 3, um, and this, this next, starting in verse 3, this next paragraph is a central key word within the whole book. It tells us the truth that's being communicated in the time that they're here, what the foundation is that God's building, what God is doing. But it also this paragraph that we're going to look at reveals the next big theme that we want to focus on as far as who God is. And it's this, is that God, he is a God who covenants. He is a God who covenants. God wants a relationship with us. God wants to be in relationship with us. And so it says in verse 3, The Lord called, called to him out of the mountains, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is the main section that we want to focus in on today. Now, it's important to note that The Israelites are already in a covenant relationship with God. That goes all the way back to Abraham in Genesis. If you want to read that on your own, mark that down. It's Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Those are two key passages that really what we see here in Exodus 19 is building off of. But this is a special moment within that relationship. And so call it a covenant within a covenant or a vow renewal or whatever we want to refer to it as, what we see here is who God is and what this relationship with the Israelites is, is taking center stage. He is the God who covenants. He wants to be in a relationship with us. And so how does this passage unpack that truth for us? Well, the first thing it's going to show us is this, is that God is the one who makes the relationship possible. God is the one who makes this possible. That first part of the paragraph, You yourself have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if if you haven't been with us for the last few messages, one thing that we've seen pretty consistently is how forgetful the Israelites are. They leave Egypt, and then, like literally, a couple days later, it's like, "Oh, this is horrible." They leave slavery in a couple and see this big miraculous rescue that God does, and a couple months later, it's like, "You're just trying to kill us, God." They're really, really forgetful about what has happened and what God has done. So God is starting off right away, before you even open your mouths, Israel. Let me remind you of who I am and what I've done. And so he reminds them first that he is the God who rescued them. That he rescued them. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. First and foremost, they are to remember their salvation, their rescue. That God brought them out of Egypt and freed them. He's telling them, remember the whole Red Sea thing? Remember me defeating Pharaoh? Remember the plagues? Don't forget, I'm the one who brought you out of that. Not anything you did, I brought you out of that. And we need to remember that as well. When it comes to the reality of being rescued from our sin to being brought into life in relationship with God, Romans tells us in Romans 5, For while you were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the reality of the good news. That's the fact that we need to be reminded of as far as that God makes this possible. Through Jesus' death on the cross, he has rescued us from sin and brought us into life. So God reminds them that he rescued them. God also reminds them that he protected them. God protects you. He says, I bore you on eagle's wings. Now, I'm an unashamed nerd. And so it's hard for my mind to not go to Lord of the Rings and Hobbit here. If you've seen those, if you've read those, if you haven't, I'm praying for you. You really need to catch up with the rest of culture. But the idea of the fellowship running and in danger and these eagles come swooping in to save them. You just ruined it for me. You've had time. But in some ways that's the in some ways that's the image that we have here of Jesus with as God as a as an eagle bearing the people but not just the idea of carrying them off to safety but also these huge wings coming around them and covering them and protecting them. It says in Deuteronomy he unpacks actually Deuteronomy is a book that looks back and reminds Israel what they've gone through. It says in Deuteronomy 32 For the Lord's portion to his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance, in a desert land he found him, in a barren and howling waste. He shielded him and cared for him. God talking about the nation. He guarded him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, that spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. This protective mother caring for its chicks. That's the image that we have of God for his people here, that he covers them, that he protects them, that he fights for them. And it's as true for them, it's as true for us as it was for them. God rescued you, God protected you, and then the last part of this that he reminds them is that God brought you near. He brought you, I say I brought you to myself. Uh, The point of the whole Exodus story isn't simply to get them out of Egypt, even though that's a really, really big part of this. It's also the idea that God is bringing them out of slavery to bring them to himself. I don't want you to exist like that. I want you to exist as my people, free, being able to be in relationship with me. He took them from isolation and drew them near into his caring embrace. What had happened and what would happen was because of God because of God. It wasn't because of the Israelites. It wasn't because they were impressive. It wasn't because they were mighty. It wasn't because they had done anything. It was because God wanted them. And again, Deuteronomy, looking back, he tells them this. It says in Deuteronomy 7, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all people. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It isn't because there's anything impressive about you, Israel. It's because I love you. And it's the same for us. It isn't that there's anything impressive about us. We don't have to earn God's love. We don't have to try to be better. We don't have to try to be good. We can't impress him. He's perfect. We don't earn his love. We receive his love. God is the one who made all of this possible. And it's true. And what's true for them is as true for us. And the New Testament tells us that. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. God loved you before you even thought of loving him. God loved you throughout every second of your life. Every second of your life. I think of my life, and there's definitely been some high moments, but there's been a lot of stupid moments as well. And I put that on myself. And in those moments, God loved me as much as he ever did. And it's true for you as well. He loves you. He is the one who makes this possible. We need to remember that. We don't earn anything from God. We receive from him. So he's the one that makes this possible. The second thing we see from this chapter 19, is that God invites us to trust our lives to him. He invites us into this relationship with us, uh, with him. He wants us to come and be in relationship with him. He says in verse 5, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. God rescued these people to be with this people. He rescued them because of his covenant with them. Now a covenant is more than a promise. This is not just pinky swear, anything like that, you know, verbal, no, ver- verbal oath, nothing like that. This is a binding. A covenant is a binding agreement between two people. It could be between equal, equals, but here we see the idea of a superior and an inferior, obviously God and humanity. But it goes back, again, to Genesis 15. God told Abraham in Genesis 15, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." He was covenanting with them. He was making an agreement with them. He was forming a relationship with them that would lead to restoring God's relationship with humanity. Because of what God was doing through Abraham and through them would lead to what he was doing through Jesus. A bringing people back into life with him. A life of fulfillment and purpose and joy and peace. Now we're going we're gonna to get to the obedience language that this verse talks about in a moment. But I want you to look at the smallest word in this verse part that I read in verse 5. If If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. If you will do this. If if you will live in this relationship. It alludes to the question are you in this relationship? Are you in this covenant? Is this something that you are doing, you are a part of, or are you not? The word, one of the key words in all of the book of Exodus is the Hebrew word that we get the word serve or worship from. The word, that Hebrew word that we get that's translated serve or worship in this book is used 97 different times throughout the entire book. And the reason why that's important is because it gets to the idea of what Exodus is asking. Who do you serve? Who do you worship? Who is your heart in covenant with? Who are you binding yourself with for life? God made a covenant with them. Now he's te- and, and the covenant has always been based on his faithfulness and his work. But he's asking them, I'm in this are you in this? Are you in this covenant with me? And the reality is, is that you and I need to answer that question as well. Jesus makes it really clear what he came to do. It says in John 10, My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. How does he give us that life? It says in, before that in John 3, For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus came to make it possible for us to be in relationship with God, to have our sins forgiven, and to enter into the life that we were made to be in, to that rich and satisfying life that can only be found in him. He makes it possible through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Part of that is trusting him, making him Lord of our life. He says it, it says in Romans, if you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. For it's by believing in your heart that you are made right with God and it's openly declaring your faith that you are saved. Openly declaring that Jesus is Lord of my life. Is that true for you? Is Jesus Lord of your life? Believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Doesn't mean that you don't have any questions about faith or anything about God or anything like that, because anybody that doesn't have questions about God probably isn't alive. But what it means is I know that he died, and he died for me, and he died for everyone. And I know that three days later he rose from the dead. He conquered sin. He conquered death and he makes it possible for me to be alive with him. I believe that he died and he rose from the dead and because of that I have life. Do you believe that? Not just like the information, but do you believe in the depth of who you are? God is saying in Romans, we have to do that. Well, I've just kind of always been in church or we, my parents believe this stuff or I'm way better than my coworker. I mean, you should see some of the stuff that he does. None of that's on the table. Is Jesus Lord of your life? Do you believe that he died for you and rose from the dead so that you can have life? That's what it's all about. It says in Ephesians 2, God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. It isn't earning the gift It's receiving that gift. And so like the Israelites, we have to answer the same question. Who do you serve? Who is Lord of your life? Are you in this covenant with God? And if you're not, let today be the day that that begins. It's just coming before him and saying, God, save me. I acknowledge that you died on the cross and you rose from the dead. I want you to be Lord of my life. Not just a small part of my life that I worry about Sunday mornings for an hour. But all of my life is now you. I'm aligning who I am. That's what putting your faith in Jesus means. I'm aligning who I am with who he is. And when you do that, that's when you're saved. That's when you receive this rich and satisfying life that Jesus gives us. That's when we know we have joy and peace and hope, not rooted in ourselves or this world or our circumstances, but rooted in a good God who loves us, who has won the victory, and who we have life forever with. But like them, you have to ask yourself, how do you received that gift? Are you in this covenant? Who do you worship? With God we find true life. Have you received that invitation? And know what he is offering to you. Because that's the third thing. A relationship with God gives us life to its fullness. A relationship with God gives us life to his fullness. He says in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. When we follow the Lord, when we covenant with God, what is it that we get? Well, he's telling us we are, are his treasured people. A reiteration of his love for them, of his care for them. They are not just strangers in a crowd. They are people he cares for and loves immensely. We can't, I cannot emphasis, emphasize this enough, and God, let this never be cliché to us. God loves you God loves you yeah but I don't do this or I haven't done this or I did do God loves you you can't put any qualifier on that to make it where he does love you because he already does you can't put any qualifier on that that's going to make it yeah but wouldn't he that's going to have him lose his love for you because it's not based on you it's based on who he is And you can't put any qualifier on that to make him love you more because he loves you perfectly. It cannot be said enough. And I'm afraid that many times it becomes cliche to us because sometimes we hear it so much. But let it never be a cliche. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. You are his treasured people. That should move our hearts. That should encourage our hearts. That should shape our hearts. That should give us a confidence and a strength. You need to know that God loves you. We are his treasured people. When we are in this covenant with him, this life with him, we are also a people with purpose, a people of purpose. He says you are a kingdom of priests. You are the influencers of this world, and not in a social media way, maybe, though, a part of that. But what is the whole idea of there is that people, based on what they're saying and doing, are influencing other people to do and say things and experience things. What God is saying is that you are my priest. You are the ones who help people experience me. You are the ones who let people know who I am. You are the ones who portray the love that I have for you. Your People are going to experience that love and how they interact with who you are. You are a holy nation, a set-apart people meant to represent God's character in the culture. The, God, the fact that God tells us that we are his treasured people, that we are people of purpose, kingdoms of priests, holy nation, that means that we, have, we don't live, we are not defined by any sense of shame because you, you are loved by God. We don't have to be ruled by guilt because we are forgiven by our Savior. You don't have to have a sense or be ruled by perfectionism because God is the one who has done what needs to be done, and we can't earn anything like that from him. We can come to him with who we are and receive love and grace and mercy. We are his treasured people, people of purpose. First Peter in the New Testament uses this same language that we see here in Exodus 19. He says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who were called out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. When you are a person who follows the Lord, when he is Lord of your life, then you are a treasured, included, empowered, commissioned, wanted person. You are part of something. You are not alone. You are united with others. You are the ones who let others know about how amazing God is and all that he's done. We need to clarify this, though. Again, it isn't that we're earning anything. He isn't saying that if you obey me, then all of this stuff happens. He's saying that doing this shows the reality that you're in this commitment. In Genesis 15, God committed to be faithful to the covenant, even when his people weren't faithful. I'm going to be faithful to you. I'm going to keep doing this regardless of what you do. And that is still true. But here in Exodus 19, what God is saying is, my faithfulness doesn't mean that you just go and do whatever. Think of it if we had a guy who said, my marriage is in shambles. I'm not, let me clarify, I am not saying that. But if we had a guy who's saying that, but then you found out as you talked to the guy a little bit more that he's not coming home till crazy late, if at all, that he mocks his wife when he's not ignoring her and that he has been caught flirting with other co-workers. Of course your marriage is in shambles because he's acting like an idiot. He's not acting like he's married. What God is telling Israel is, if you're in this covenant, you need to act like you're in this covenant. Like a person who's married needs to act married, if you're in this covenant, you need to act like you're in this covenant. You need to be faithful to what I'm calling you to. Commitment is defined in the covenant, an all-encompassing act. When somebody who's married lives out their vows, they experience the fullness of the relationship. When they don't live out their vows, they're not experiencing the relationship as it was meant to be. So what God is saying to them in, be obedient and you will experience this, is that when you live the fullness of your commitment, you experience the fullness of the relationship. But if you're unfaithful, you don't experience the fullness of the relationship. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. We want to be a treasured people. We want to be loved. We want to be cared for. We want to be wanted. We want to have purpose. We want to have meaning. There are many things in this life that can give us those things that our hearts desire, but anything that tries to give us those things or we search for in those things, it's only temporary and it's never guaranteed. There are only samples and imitations of this life that God offers we have to find life in him. We have to be defined by him. He wants to give you life to its fullness. You have to receive that gift and live that life with him. He's giving it to you, but you have to receive it. The last thing for today, God makes this relationship possible. He's done, he invites us into this life with him, He gives us life to its fullest, but then the last thing is that God shows us how to live with him in this covenant relationship. He doesn't just say, okay, be obedient, without telling us what to be obedient to. He doesn't tell us, be holy as I am holy, without telling us what that looks like. He brings us into this life, but he also guides us in how to do it. We're not going to go into all the details of the rest of Exodus 19, but in this, he's telling them to prepare themselves. It does say in verse to read 10 and 11, it says, But Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai and the sight of all the people. This is a it's a call to holiness, a prelude of things to come. It's basically teaching them be mindful of how you live. Have a mindset that you are different than that the people around you. Don't be flippant. Don't be apathetic. Be mindful of the fact that you are my people and I am calling you to live and follow me. It goes into Exodus 20. After this, he prepares the people. He comes down and talks to Moses. We see Moses going up and down the mountain a couple of times. But God finally, with his own hand, writes on tablets and gives them these words. It says at the beginning of Exodus 20, God spoke all these words to them saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. These Ten Commandments. Now, it's unfortunate that we call them the Ten Commandments because, yes, there is a command-be-obedient aspect of this, but they're deeper than that. They're more than that. These ten words, if you will, shape the community, form the people, guide their identity, guide their lives. And a better way of referring to them would be the Ten Vows. I think about all the different weddings that I've done in my time in ministry, and I always tell couples the exact same thing. Make this your ceremony, personalize it, do whatever you want, but at some point, you have to covenant with one another. At some point, you have to commit, and not just I love you, don't you remember? Words saying, I'm going to be this type of a spouse to you. I'm committing to be this type of a person to you. And they hear that from one another. That's what we see in the Ten Commandments. These aren't God just saying, you're going to do this, 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 and this. It's also God saying, and I'm going to be this type of a God to who you are. One of the things that we see, we only read sometimes the don't do this. But again, we need to see the depth of what's happening in the Ten Commandments. We can't go through all of them, but I want you to see how this principle works. Take the one commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Well, behind that don't commit adultery, there's also a do, there's a positive, there's a be something. And what is that? Be faithful. Don't commit adultery, be a faithful person, be a faithful spouse. Well, why are you supposed to do that? Because God is faithful. Because God is faithful, you should be faithful. And if you're going to be faithful, that means don't be unfaithful. For every single one of the commandments, we can do this where we can see not only what they're saying not to do, but what they are telling us to do and how that points to God. Look at this. It says, no other gods, be a one God person. Why? Because God is the only God. No idols, why would he say that? Because we should be reliant on God and not something or somebody else. And why? Because God is creator. Don't take the Lord's name. Be honorable of God because he's holy. Keep the Sabbath. Be a person, not a machine. Why? Because God is sovereign. Honor your parents. Embrace life. Don't waste it because God is life. Don't murder. Be a life giver, not taker because God is just. Don't steal. Be a giver, not withholder because God provides. We already did adultery. Don't false witness. Be a thankful person because God, truthful person because God is truth. Don't covenant. Be thankful for your life because God is sufficient. Within all of the commands, he's telling them how to be because he wants them to be like him. Be holy as I am holy. Here's what holiness looks like in our day-to-day lives. God is guiding us. And that's the thing. When some people say, I don't want this whole Christian thing. I don't like God just all into don'ts and can't do anything and can't experience life. Who wouldn't want this kind of life? Think about what Take away anything religious or anything. If we were to not do these things in society, what would it do to society? If anybody could murder, if everybody could be unfaithful, if everybody just worked, 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 worked and never took a break, if we did all these things, would it make a better society or a worse society if we broke all the commands? It would be worse, right? But it's kind of like God knew what he was doing. (laughs) When he said, be like me and follow me in this life. And as you're living your life, be as I am. Because that's going to make not only you better, but the society that you're in better. Maybe the reason why our communities and our cities and our culture and our countries and everything are the way they are now, not because we've um, lost sight of the reality of God or not because we're trying too hard, but because our focus is wrong. Because we're too busy trying to do, as God's people, we're too busy trying to live cultural values or cultural focuses rather to being the people that God's called us to be. God gives us this life. He says, come and serve me. I'm giving you life to its fullest. And then he shows us how to live that. God knew what he was doing when he called us to him. He knows what he's doing when he says, be holy as I am holy. It's not to ruin our life or to make our lives less meaningful or anything like that. It's to give us life to its fullest. It's most meaningful. It's most rewarding. But you have to receive that life from him. Jesus says in John 8, Jesus spoke to the people once more and said, and I love that language, once more. I'm going to say this again, Jesus says. I am the light of the world, If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you have the light that leads to life. Jesus is calling to you just as he calls to me. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness. Are you walking in darkness this morning? God wants you to come to him. He wants you to come to the light. He wants you to find life in him. He's made it possible. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to get my approval. You don't have to fill out a form. You don't have to complete a checklist. You just have to come to Jesus and say, I believe you. Forgive me. Be Lord of my life. Receive the gift. And when you do, you are going to have the light that leads to life. And maybe someone in, many of you in here, you've done that. We need to be reminded of who we are we can read the stories of the israelites and go these silly forgetful israelites we're just as bad we need to be reminded of who we are and the call of faithfulness that god has given to us and everything we shouldn't just be thinking about jesus and the lord and faithfulness here on sunday we should be thinking and focused on him every minute of our lives at work, at home, with friends, by ourselves, whatever it is, God, I worship you. And I want to be living with you and I want to be faithful to you. And so we need that reminder. If you're in here today and you've never trusted Jesus, let today be the day that you find that life. Let today be the day that you say, God, I'm worshiping you. I'm, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to forgive me. I want to find life in you. You know, when, and when, again, you do that, that's when you are saved. That's when we truly begin to live. That's when we're the sons and daughters of God. One of the things that God tells us within that, the, call it the first step of obedience, if you will, is to proclaim that to others. We're going to be doing baptisms in a few weeks, on August 20th. Uh, we're going to be going uh, over to uh, Montrose Beach. We did this last summer. And what baptism is, is a time of public profession of faith. It's a moment of declaring your loyalty to Jesus. It's a moment of saying, I am somebody who follows Jesus. And as far as the church community, it's I'm your brother or sister. I'm with you as we follow him. To be a follower of Jesus and to not be baptized is to be disobedient. He tells us, people who follow me proclaim who I am with their life, and the first step of that proclamation, the way that we, the first opportunity we have to proclaim that loyalty that we have to God is in baptism. And so if you've never been baptized, I am a follower of Jesus, then be baptized. Maybe you've just been following, you've put your trust in him and put your faith in him recently, it's time to get baptized. Maybe it's something that the church you came from or it's never been talked about. It's time to get baptized. And this isn't the only time that we do this, but it's cool to be by the lake and in the water. Because uh, the other option is we have a horse trough that we put up here on the stage. And that's cool, but let's just be honest, the beach is a little bit cooler. So if you have questions, if you know that you want to get baptized that day, if you have questions about it, um, if you take the connection card, um, and on the connection card, there's a spot that says, Baptism, Just put your name and your contact information on there. Check that baptism box. It's not uh, an in-blood commitment, but if you have questions, we can talk through that, what that means, help you prepare for that, and let you know what that looks like on the 20th. But let me just say this. If you hear me saying this, about if you've never put your trust in Jesus, you need that today. When I said those words, when I say those words, if you feel like there's like a, a kick in your heart, a prompt, that there's a movement in your spirit. Maybe that's God trying to get your attention. When I say if you've never been baptized, you need to get baptized. If that doesn't just roll in, go in one ear and out the other, but that's sticking with you right now. Maybe that's God telling you it's time to get baptized. So stop making excuses for it and start being obedient. And I know that for some, that's a difficult decision. Maybe it's a family thing or maybe it's a uh, uh, kind of just whatever. There's a lot of different things that are genuine things of concern. And we can talk through that and help you process that. But if God's laying on your heart to be baptized, we want to celebrate the fact that you are his child. And we want to celebrate the fact that you are a person of faith, that your loyalty is in Jesus and that you're part of the church. Because that's what we're meant to do is to celebrate that with one another and thank God for what he's doing. And so if that's something that you know you need to do, just fill this out, and when service is over, you can put it in the tray in the back, and then we'll follow up with you. God is the God of covenant. He wants to be in relationship with you. He's done everything possible. He extends that invitation. He shows you how to do it, but you have to receive that gift. And I pray that you do that today. God, I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for these men and women. I thank you for how you've made this place what it is, God, I pray that if there's anyone who hasn't put their trust in you, that it hasn't made you Lord of your life, God, I pray if you're working in their heart, I pray that they would receive that, that they wouldn't ignore it, that they wouldn't push it aside, but they would have courage to pursue you the way that they're, you're pursuing them. Help them to seek answers to their questions, to process those things, and come to find life in you. God, for those who are thinking of baptism, I pray the same thing. Give them courage to follow up on those things, to take that step, For all of us, God, remind us of the life that you give us and the privilege of being your children. It's in your name we pray, amen. Hey, we're going to close with one last song. And as we do, stand with me and we'll do this uh, just as a prayer of worship to God as we think about the life that we have with him, as we think about this life that he gives us and makes possible, we want to be grateful for that. And so in that, let's sing this together.